1: Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest and member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you?
0: Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself?
1: Doing great. Thanks for being here.
0: Thank you, too.
1: Yep, Uh, Father, we have a few things that uh, we'd like to get into tonight, but this this first one is um is an article that has been, been going around uh some in the, the traditional Catholic circle. Um certainly a very uh very pungent article perhaps. It's it's titled Madness in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. Uh this is from the uh Advanced Institute for Economic Research, AIER dot org. And uh, this this article, Father, is is really rather eye-opening. And I'd I'd like to just read through a few little excerpts here and uh, get your take on this. um, This article is written by a Jeffrey A. Tucker. And he says that uh, in Melbourne, the premier has imposed a vicious police state without precedent in this country's history. His name is Dan Andrews, and he tweets out pictures of empty streets to brag about what he has achieved in the name of suppressing a virus. And he gives a summary of some of the things going on in, in Melbourne, Australia currently. He says it's, it's become a living hell, and uh, some of the, the summary here, he says that the police may now enter anyone's home without a warrant. There is an 8 p.m. curfew. There's a $1,652 fine if anyone is outside without a, quote, valid reason. Uh, that The amount of the fine is being raised by the day, he says. Um, citizens are not permitted to visit any family or friends. Masks are mandatory at all times. There is a $200 fine if someone goes about without a mask. Um, citizens can only exercise once per day for up to one hour. Only one person per household per day can leave the house, including for groceries. You cannot go more than three miles from your home. Weddings are illegal. No gatherings of any size. Uh, the list goes on and on and on, Father. And uh, he, he ends by saying all of this is because 147 people have died in the state of Victoria. Uh, they have a total population there of 6.359 million. 147 of those have died, and almost all of those deaths are from persons who were over 70 with comorbidities, same as everywhere else in the world. So, Father, what is going on in Melbourne, Australia? Why why has it become this living hell that he has uh, described here with all of these absolutely insane, insane things happening there? What is going on? Politics.
0: Basically, you've got a a politician, they've given power to, they've given him power over themselves, and he is making these uh, edicts, mandates, uh, tyrannically, evidently, and, uh, I mean, I don't know what the law is in Australia, I don't know what the Constitution provides for, I I don't Mm -hmm. know if the Premier, as he calls him, really has the... Uh, constitutional power, the legal power to do this. The point is he's doing this. And we know there are so many governors in the United States of America and mayors who are issuing such decrees, right, governing the lives of the people uh, within their jurisdiction, that uh, there are a lot of people suffering because of this and uh, suffering not only curtailment of their freedom, but they're also suffering... uh, um, Emotionally psychologically uh suffering the ill effects you were mentioning uh, just recently that uh, Even the head of the CDC in this country the Center for Disease Control uh, Robert Redfield has pointed out that, that the uh, the suicide rate even among young people now is exceeding the deaths uh, by the virus mm-hmm. and they're attributing a lot of this suicide to depression and uh, Anxiety caused by all of the propaganda with regard to the virus. So uh there's no no doubt about it that there are people who are dying because of the virus, but uh, the numbers are greatly inflated, I, I believe. Uh, the number of cases are greatly inflated, uh, certainly. But also um, that the number of those who are dying of the propaganda and the hysteria about the virus are much greater than those who are actually being killed by the disease itself. Um, I wonder at what point these politicians are going to be held accountable. You know, they talked about uh, Andrew Cuomo up in New York uh, having forced the, you know, elderly who have had the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus insisting that they had to go into the nursing homes. And there they had thousands of elderly people die of uh, of this coronavirus. They were exposed to it by almost by, by mandate, in a sense, the government required that the nursing homes open their door and take in these candidates, these people who were infected with the disease, uh, with the virus, and who were showing symptoms, and they passed it on to so many others. Thousands and thousands of these people died. At at one point, is one responsible for that, not only before God, but should be held responsible before man too, in terms of being accountable for that. Now, here you have a case in Melbourne, uh, really beautiful Melbourne, Australia, right? Where they say this place has become like a gigantic prison it's like a gigantic maximum security prison mm-hmm. where somebody if someone appears outside his own home without a reason that the the police there i guess the the virus police find uh, suitable find acceptable they will be fined right mm-hmm. who knows what else would happen to them um uh, if, if the fine doesn't work the first time and uh people are literally cowering in fear, evidently not so not of the virus but of, of the of the polit- political action that has been taken by that uh They become prisoners, really, and they're innocent you know we're talking about imprisoning the innocent, and uh, we're talking about uh basically putting a lockdown on the entire country for the healthy mm-hmm. Uh, if there's any way to guarantee that people are going to become ill, physically or mentally ill, this is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Is it criminal? I would personally consider it to be criminal to do this to people. And uh, I'm wondering how long it's, it's going to take before anybody's is held accountable for the political decisions made. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you'd say, well, political accountability takes place at the ballot box when the elections happen, right? Theoretically, right? Right. But that means these people who are imposing these draconian, these immoral, these devilish uh, uh, prescriptions on uh, governing the lives of other people have a a need almost to justify these high heavy-handed These heavy-handed tactics by trying to scare people all the more and make them think that this is really necessary, that this really is for your own good, because you are in so much danger right now of dying terribly from this disease. And so they have to keep the propaganda going also, as justification for the public policies they're enacting here. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's, it's, you know, the, the more they fear, the more they feel empowered to enact these policies, which are so restrictive and so detrimental to the people. And the more the policies, the more they feel they have to inflict more fear in order to justify the policies uh, that they enact. As the damage piles up from the policies they've introduced, they have to justify what they've done somehow. And the only justification they have is to show that this uh, virus is is an immediate threat to the life of every man, woman, child on the face of the earth. <laughs> um, so they have to keep the propaganda going too.
1: Mm-hmm. Father, there, there was there was one other um, particularly appalling point that I wanted to read in this kind of laundry list of, of some of the things going on there. He, he said that uh, since so many people are, are under house arrest and unable to leave for any reason, he says that food rations are being delivered by the army. Now, well, uh, it's <laughs> absolutely mind-boggling there how well, um, and
0: you if you're in a prison. Yeah. <laughs> the guards have to come through and slide, especially in solitary, to slide the, the mm-hmm. whatever under the mm-hmm. door. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, Father, I mean, it, it's awfully easy to kind of read through all of this and, you know, obviously be appalled by by what's going on there. But it's it's awfully easy to kind of say, well, you know, that's that's a whole world away from us. That's the land down under. That would never come to America. That couldn't happen in America. But a lot of these things, to to some extent, have already happened here in America, and they seem to be only getting worse. Is that? Did it you say could, that's that, true?
0: That, that, that could very well happen. How, how far away
1: from this do you think we are
0: here, well, here in America? Well, Tom, look, how long did it take us to get where we are right now? Not very long. You know, a matter of a few months ago, we would have thought this is un- unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And here we are. And uh, so, actually, we're much closer to this scenario of Melbourne than we were to, our you know, the standard operating procedure here in the United States of America just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. We've come a long way toward that, precisely. And they're already laying down the principles and the precedents yeah. to en- enable them to do this, you know. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're right on the edge. Uh, you know, th- there was a time when people were saying, look, we are just a few, we're just a week behind Milano, what's going on in Milan, right? Mm-hmm. They were saying, oh, we're just a matter of a few weeks behind China and what's going on in China. And now here we are where we are right now. Okay. And this is after we supposedly have opened up. Again, okay, but now we're on the verge here. They keep the heat on they keep the drumbeat going right for the lockdown 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 and uh, Now we're hearing even the head of the, the Fed Federal Reserve saying oh, we got to lock everything up for six weeks now I mean this drumbeat is still going on here So all we need is to get some some entirely fabricated numbers about the number of cases And how we're in a second uh, surge, you know, or whatever Uh Or or deaths, all of a sudden, the number of deaths statistically has gone up, even if it involves people who died in motorcycle accidents and and plane crashes and who knows what else, uh, to get people to think, oh, my goodness, they've got to do something, do something, do something. And that's the next step. This is what they're going to do. So, um, you know, I I feel very badly for the people in Melbourne who are suffering from this. And And clearly, I mean, they must be suffering terribly. By this uh, this monstrous behavior but um, There's a there's a certain um, Well, you know the one thing that could stand in the way of all this is the Catholic faith Uh, The one thing that stood in the way of abortion really when you get right down to it was the Catholic Church and uh, That problem was solved with Vatican II knocking the church out of the way Um, Right back basically uh, hamstring the church of modernism. So she was no longer able to defend, right? The sixties came and went, Vatican II, the changes, and lo and behold, uh, Roe versus Wade, and the, uh, the anti-abortion laws were struck down throughout the country very rapidly. Just, in fact, ten years after Vatican II began. That would not, that could not have happened without Vatican II. It couldn't have happened without the revolution that took place in the Vatican, in the church after Vatican II. But the abortion revolution followed upon the Vatican II modernist revolution within the Catholic Church. Uh, and so it is that with these things that were happening now, that we see happening now, these things could not be happening in a Catholic society where the Church was strong because the Catholic Church and her, and her clergy would not allow these things to happen. They'd be leading the people and fighting for, uh, their God given rights. But that's why every tyrant has had to silence the Church. Before they could get away with their tyranny uh, This show this program is called what Catholics believe and so it for us It all comes back to that it comes back to our faith it comes back to the church it Comes back to our Lord Jesus Christ And what he wants for mankind and this is not what he wants for mankind But for a fact a punishment he allows it as a punishment for our sins mm-hmm. And often we ourselves have fabricated our own prisons in this case. We've actually built our own prisons by the mentality of liberalism, modernism, leftism, right? Totalitarianism that has come into, into play. Even the idea of socialism itself necessarily contains the seeds of totalitarianism. And so we brought that back into uh, into play here, and we're reaping a very bitter harvest of this right now.
1: Sure, well Father, if we could uh, move on to perhaps some, some lighter things. If people,
0: you know, but what is this, one of the central themes there they're struggling here if i may keep with this, <laughs> this slide theme for a minute is it's all about this life everything's about this right, life right. right this life at all costs right yeah. even if we have to live as slaves we have to cling to life right but that's what they do in prison camps they cling to life even they're living they're living this horrible experience right and um but that's not what our founding fathers were This is not, nor is that, uh, but the martyrs of the church have taught us that um, we live for God, we live for the faith, we live for everlasting life. Now, you know, our founding fathers were not, for the most part, Catholics, by any means, and they didn't uh, promote openly the idea of martyrdom, but they still had the idea that there were more important things than life in this world, at least. Mm -hmm. But the Catholic church teaches us that we're made for everlasting life. Right and uh we are we are we we are meant to live for things that are that are beyond this world that have a greater value than anything of this world uh actually we're meant to as saint paul says use the things of this world for the sake of glorifying god sanctifying our souls and gaining everlasting life through our lord jesus christ the obsession with the things of the world comes from materialism a kind of uh a kind of almost Christian atheism, in a sense, that you have these people who profess belief in Christ, but that's as far as it goes. The rest of their life is all about the things of the world, that that's what really matters to them. Where your treasure is, there shall your heart be, our Lord said. And their hearts are here. And so the idea of contracting a virus, the idea of uh, becoming ill and and dying of the virus, it's the worst thing they can imagine. Yeah. So they're willing to, to seek to live in solitary confinement in the dark, deepest, deepest, darkest dungeon of the world, built by their own hands, their own sins, rather than risk catching this 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 virus. And let's face it, I mean, this is what viruses do—they spread. <laughs> you know, there's nothing human beings can do to possibly uh, suppress this virus, okay? As though so it didn't exist. I mean, so. But it, it 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 really comes from a, a uh, an obsession with the things of the world, that thing people become so terrified by this that they can think of nothing else, but avoiding, escaping, or beating, suppressing this virus, flattening the curve. That's that's the one thing that matters, and so like lemmings, they'll all rush off the cliff, you know, because they're obsessed with this call, flatten the curve. Uh, you know, suppress the virus and, and wait for the vaccine so we can all be saved by the murder, this, this, this Russian vaccine. Now Putin says in uh, Russia, they now have the vaccine. And now they can begin to breathe again because the evil virus will spare them or something to that effect. Anyway. But, uh, yeah, anyway, Tom, uh, it, it is materialism. It is worldliness that is, that is really behind this mania. Sure. That's what has allowed them to cow these people in fear, to do things that are so unnatural and even anti-natural to us.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Father, if we could get into some of our viewer questions here. We have a, a few. And the uh, first one is from a viewer who asks, what are the major differences between the Dewey rheims uh, version of the Bible and the King James version of the Bible? What's the difference?
0: Well, one could look at the particular... Uh, instances of differences by turning through the pages, you know, side by side and saying, look at the differences here. I don't think that's what the question is about, though. Okay. I mean, I understand that there are 1,400 significant differences. Both of them are translations. You have to re- remember that. The, the, the so-called Douai Reims version, right, which is what the Catholics have been using. <clears throat> and, uh, but the, it's what people think of the Catholic version of the Bible. And the King James Version, which people consider like the Protestant version of the Bible, are both translations. Because <clears throat> none of the books of the Bible were actually originally written um, in, in English. Right. Okay, uh, English as a language didn't even exist at the time. right? Um, and uh, the words of the prophets, the words of our Lord spoken in the gospel, none of these things were spoken in English. Um, so we have translations. So the question is what about these translations and the differences between them? Uh, well, definitely you take any two translations and they're going to differ Because every time you're translating from one language to another every word has a variety of meanings and nuances that come with it uh, So, you know, you're putting a, the human element in there of interpret as you're translating uh, from let's say Greek uh, the Greek of St. Luke or St. Mark or St. John you're translating the Greek uh, Into any language You're automatically also interpreting What you understand the meaning to be so there's always that human element of interpretation of what you say This is what he really means. This is the best word in German to reflect what the, I believe the meaning is in that language, okay? So there's a question that somebody's already interpreting when you have an English Bible like this the terms Somebody is already interpreting what they mean what it means. So they're using theology and so on to understand Okay, this is what this really means could mean that could mean that it doesn't mean those things. It means this Okay. Uh, I understand there are at least fourteen hundred different significant differences in the translations such that the meaning in the King James Version and the meaning in the king and the douai rooms are are two different meanings in terms of faith what they actually mean to say now this is very significant because if you were a, a a bible-believing christian who actually held the error that all that god has to teach us is contained in the bible and you'd say well gee every translation is going to have different meaning then how do we how do we adjust address that that we're having the only access I have to Bible is through an English translation which already is being interpreted for me by somebody else. And how do I know that that actually corresponds to the original meaning? I don't. I'm taking that word for it. And I might have 30 different English translations and I compare them all and I say that they say different things. And uh, inevitably they have different uh, translations, uh, different renderings and different languages. So... Uh, How do I know this actually corresponds to what was actually said by the prophet or by our Lord himself in the gospel? So you see, already you begin to see this idea that scripture alone doesn't work. That you need a higher authority to tell you what is the true understanding, the true interpretation of this. Even in terms of all of these translations you're given. Now, as Catholics, we have the authority of the church that Christ established. He gave the authority to the church. To tell us this is accurate, this is true. Like the the Bible you have before you now, the Treador reims uh translation is endorsed by the Catholic Church in her authority, saying this is accurate. This reflects what what the 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 meaning of the true text of the Gospel, even as it was first written down. Let's say uh, by Saint Mark <laughs> as he was recording the preaching of Saint Peter in the home of the Senator Pudens in Rome in the year forty A.D. Right. Uh, the church can tell you that that is accurate and does represent truly what was revealed by God Protestants don't have any authority that can tell them that They have no authority here on earth. They can tell them this is an accurate translation and this is this corresponds to the original meaning um, And so they're immediately out to sea relying on the interpretation of interpreters and translators and and uh, typesetters, right and printers and so on, to make sure it all comes out right. But they have no way no authority on it they can tell them that this came out right. So the the difference really between any approved Catholic version of the Bible, that is I said approved by the authority of the church to which which Christ established and to which he gave his authority. On the one hand, and on the other hand, any Protestant translation, is that we have the guarantee of the church, and that is the guarantee of Christ, that this is accurate, and Protestants have none of that. That's the fundamental difference. That they're all about interpreting it in their own way. And this is a fundamental Protestant principle. That is, individual, private interpretation of the Scriptures. The Scriptures is all we have, sola scriptura, and it is to be interpreted privately by each individual, which is exactly what every translator does when he translates and you have the King James version of the Bible, which was translated by a bunch of different uh, literary, literary figures uh, under King James, right? A bunch of literary figures of England, who were meant to, to translate these scriptures, and they were. But they produced a primary it was primarily liturgy, not scripture. It was primarily, I should say, literature, not scripture. Because as literati, they were concerned with providing something, a text that was elegant. But not something necessarily that was true to the, ac- absolutely true to the text that they were translating. And so, uh, I mean, an example, uh, just one small example of that is, you find this in the, uh, in the, um, the um, work by, by Haydn that they say at Christmas, the Hallelujah Chorus. And we hear them sing about uh, Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. Now, calling our Lord everlasting father is actually heretical, but it works. <laughs> you know, it liter- literarily, it works there, okay? To use the expression, it doesn't actually say that the, the actual original text going back to the uh, this praise of our the coming Savior right mm-hmm. refers to him as the father of the world to come. and we, we refer to our Lord as the Father of the world to come insofar as that he begot the Christian Christian world you say he begot their souls by, by the graces that he gave them to bring their souls to life that he obtained for them on the cross. And uh, in that sense, Christ giving life to our souls by obtaining grace for us could be referred to as having the position of father, right? But the term everlasting father has always been used in Revelation and in theology as referring to the first person of the Blessed Trinity, And we distinguish, as Christians, between the first and the second and third persons of the Blessed Trinity, that these are distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. To attribute the title, which is proper to God the Father, to the Son, is actually an attack on the idea of the distinction of persons in the Blessed Trinity. The Sonship of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, it actually is something offensive to the very concept, the Christian concept of the Blessed Trinity. And, uh, but you see, it didn't matter to the translators of the, of the, of the, uh, King James Version because they were assigned to do this task because they were the literary figures who had the classical background in Greek and Hebrew, but they could also produce, um, a translation that was literarily pleasing. And, uh, that, that took precedence over Accuracy and translation and true good theology, so to speak, right? <clears throat> this is what we see in the King James Version, King James Version of the Bible. And the King James Version of the Bible represents the Protestant understanding of penitence, repentance, and all the rest. And studiously excludes the Catholic understanding of... Uh, of so many, so many elements, so many things we read about it in the Bible, uh, that are really of the Catholic faith and had been there for hundreds and hundreds of years before Luther saw the light of day, before any, before King James saw the light of day. Right? So when you, uh, when you have the King James version of the Bible, you have to remember, though, that this is the work of literary, maybe literary geniuses, right? but not necessarily saints and certainly not men who were inspired Inspired by God uh, as the original prophets and uh, And and uh, you know writers of the Gospels and so on were inspired by God to write down Uh, The Douai Reims version on the other hand is you might even say slavishly accurate to the original Uh, so much so that the translations are maybe a little tedious to read because they want to follow as exactly as possible, the grammar, the syntax, the vocabulary as it is expressed in the Hebrew and the Greek. Mm-hmm. And so, it might be a little clumsy in reading, but because it is such an accurate translation, it is trying to carry over the original meaning as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And it is, but even at that, you still have human error, which is possible, and that is why when we say that as Catholics, we have the authority of the Church guiding us, which is the authority of Christ given to the Church, to be able to tell us with certainty that this translation does reflect the true meaning of the original sacred scripture from which it is translated. <laughs> that is that That makes all the difference between anything we know as Catholic and everything we know as Protestant. They have no such authority on earth. It's up to the individual to translate, and everybody else to just take it for granted that yeah, this is this is what it really meant.
1: Mm-hmm. And and talking about the, these different translations, Father, if I understand correctly, the, the Douay Reims version of the Bible is is not even a a translation of the original Greek or Hebrew or anything. It's actually a, a translation from the Latin uh, Vulgate, which was itself a translation. Is no, they use
0: they use the Greek.
1: They did. Okay. They use the okay. Greek
0: uh, manuscripts, and they use the Hebrew okay. too. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. But they I,
0: certainly did refer to St. Jerome's translation, which was very venerable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, again, I mean, he was trying to be slavishly accurate and precise in translating yeah. it. Yeah. In other words, the, 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 the literary individuals uh, who pr- produced the King James translation of the Bible were very conscious of, of writing something that would be, as I say, literary... <clears throat> Saint Jean, Saint uh, Jerome was not thinking in terms of writing literature. Right, right. He was talking he was thinking about conveying revelation. Mm-hmm. So there's a is a massive difference between those two things. Mm-hmm. And but the um, the um translators of the what we know as they say the Douay-Rheims version this from Douay and from Paraná I mean that's where the translations took place in the 1500s. <coughs> uh these These uh, were true translations, and not just transliterations, as it were. Um, But they they were all done with the understanding here that we're dealing with divine revelation. We can't be editorializing. We can't be looking for a clever turn of phrase or something that sounds good, literarily. We're looking for accuracy, precision. And that would be judged by the church for its accuracy and precision. And yes, they were they were referring to, well, the best of the manuscripts that they had available, in Greek and Hebrew also. Yeah.
1: Father, uh, we we do have a question about uh, one specific verse in the Douay Rheims version. Um, it's from, uh, let's see here, Matthew sixteen eighteen, Matthew chapter uh, chapter sixteen verse eighteen. Um, I'll just go ahead and read the verse here. I've got it in front of me. Uh, This is where uh, our Lord says, And I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so one of our viewers asks how you can prove that verse is in reference to the Catholic church and not just Christians in general.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that question would come up sometimes when our Catholic young people are in... In their jobs, they have coworkers who ask questions of them. So that would not be an unusual question for one of our own uh, Catholic young people to get. But, you know, you have to uh, put it in context, by the way. St. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, remember, this had to do with our Lord asking his apostles, who do men say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man referring to himself. And the apostles, you know, chimed in, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elias, and St. Peter said, Well, thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. So there he wasn't answering and saying, This is what other people say, this is what I say. He was inspired to say, to proclaim, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And so our Lord said that blessed art thou, Simon Jonah, which was his name, Simon the Son of John, or Jonah. Because flesh and blood hath not revealed this to him, but my Father who is in heaven. So he talked about divine inspiration, right? Filling the mind of Peter with this understanding and this conviction that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. And uh, so and, and our Lord said, I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's what this is referring to here. And uh, the gates of hell, I will give thee the, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever that shall bound, uh, loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So he showed this authority of the keys that he was giving, or going to give to Peter. And he said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Okay. So all of that is involved in this question. But I, I would say to someone, you know, what well, you have to explain it in such a way they understand it, and their understanding of it depends on how much they know already. You know? So you have to kind of weigh how much they already understand to build on that. But I I would just, without knowing the person who's asking the question, I would just say, look, you know, this refers to Jesus placing, promising to place one man in a position of great authority in his church, even giving him the power to make decisions here on earth that would be recognized in heaven and ratified in heaven, binding and loosing, right? Requiring or not requiring certain things, that would also be required by God in heaven because this individual on earth was given this power of the keys, you know. And, uh, so we have to realize what authority our Lord is talking about here. He's giving this authority to Peter. And this involves, uh, uh this Peter later also being told by Jesus Christ himself, you feed my lambs, you feed my sheep. And again, this was given uniquely to Peter. Because st. John the apostle was standing right there. You could refer him to st. John's the end of st. John's gospel in which this happened so this is actually tied to that as well the promise and The fulfillment where our Lord actually gives him the power of being the shepherd okay to this same man And I would just say to him look. This is what we Catholics know as the office of the papacy Okay, the supreme pastor the pastoral office That Jesus Christ, as the Good Shepherd, is giving this authority to someone here on earth. This is the papacy. And you don't find that in any other religion. No other religion acknowledges this. It has to be the Catholic religion. It's the only religion that acknowledges there is such thing. As the papacy given by Christ in these circumstances. You can't even challenge him. I mean, you take what our Lord says there, you try to find how that actually has any place in any other religion, including yours, including your, let's say, born-again or Protestant religion. Where is this papacy in your religion? It doesn't exist. That Christ gave this particular role and this particular authority to a particular individual to exercise in his name and to be the supreme pastor. You don't find it in Orthodoxy, the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. You don't find it there. You don't find any Protestants specifically rejected the idea in order to become Protestants. Right? That's what they were protesting against. (laughs) That's why they were known as Protestants, and proudly, proudly they took the name Protestants in protesting against this very thing. So I'd say we know this has to refer to the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church is the only one that took this seriously and actually oriented the church around this command of Christ and the office of the papacy. Okay. Father, I have
1: another yeah. uh, question.
0: There were, I mean, sure, whoever you talk to okay. is going to have follow-up questions, okay. which we can't do here because the person's not here. Yeah. But anyway, just trying to zero in on that question and say, well, this is how we know that. Mm-hmm. You know, and They might have ten other questions that come to mind, which they're certainly <laughs> free to ask. It?
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, well, if we could do this other question, Father, um, this is in uh, regards to the Old Testament now. This viewer asks, how could King David, a man after God's own heart, have concubines and still be in the good graces of God? Why would God allow that?
0: Well, when the writer talks about concubines, he's talking about other women besides his wife, right. that he's, you know, doing things with, right? <laughs> Without going into detail. I think everybody knows what we're talking about here. Mistresses, I guess I guess these days you'd call them mistresses. Although concubines actually had some kind of status. They might even be members of the household, but as slaves, like the extended household, including the slaves. Um, so concubines were not just mere mistresses. They actually had some kind of status uh, in the in the family as a but but the question remains how could God permit that right? Why would that not be adultery? Right, and if it is adultery, how could God not condemn it? well That that was a question of the fathers of the church going back to the very beginning dealt with uh, We see how, how roundly God condemns adultery, right? How he punishes adultery. How the law of Moses talked about adultery as being such a horrible crime, worthy of death. How the um, the prophets condemned the actions of Israel when the Jews would uh, mix with the pagans, right? Not only, I mean, you know, sexually, but even in belief. How they would uh, join in pagan religion. Pagan belief and allow pagans to have their pagan sacrifices. Solomon did Setting up altars to pagan gods all over all over Judea in order to please The pagan women who were sent to him for his harem from pagan lands And the prophets condemned this as adultery. It was a kind of spiritual adultery. It was like the worst thing they could say about it so how is it possible that God would, would allow this to happen? And especially when the, 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 the um, Pharisees and the Sadducees confronted our Lord in the streets of Jerusalem and challenged him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife and take another? This wasn't even simply on the matter of having a wife and a concubine. This talked about merit, a divorce, putting a woman away and taking another woman, but having one at a time. And our Lord said, no, this is adultery. You can't do that. It was not that way in the beginning, and it will not be that way from now on. And our Lord spoke clearly as God there, telling them that this is unacceptable. It's adultery. And he's telling people who were doing this and were com- he said, Our Lord was essentially telling them what you've been doing here is adultery. And he's been telling he's telling this to the very people who've been killing adulterers, who've been dragging them out and stoning them to death. And he's saying, our Lord is saying to them, you know what those people were doing, those terrible crimes they were committing that that enabled you to stone them to death, that entitled you to stone them to death? Well, you're doing the same thing. You're guilty of the same crimes. That's essentially what our Lord was telling them. They were they hated him for that. But their, their, their defense was, remember, Moses said we could do this. That was their defense. Moses said we could do this. It's made it okay. So essentially you have the question then, well, how could Moses approve this? How could Moses allow this to happen, divorce and remarriage? Which gets back to the same question. How could Moses let us be married and also have concubines? You know? Well, here's the, the answer the fathers of the church have given, and I think it's an excellent answer. After, after the, the flood, and the human race was essentially wiped out, but for a small, very small handful of people, Almost to the point where it looks as though God was purging and recreating the human race based upon just this handful of souls now Noah Right and his children and their wives um, God wanted to repopulate the earth How could he do that? Well for the sake of repopulating the earth he allowed as the generations flowed down from Noah his sons their wives and so on He allowed there to be taking of concubines and that is men men having concubines in addition to their wives Having uh, relations with them Generating children with them and so on Could God do that? Well, of course he's God he can do that. He wish right. He's the one who makes the the rules, right? But this is the way they explained it. They said look the primary essential purpose of marriage The primary essential purpose of of sex, right, male and female, is to give life. The very first command God gave to any human beings was increase, multiply, fill the earth. It was to our first parents, Adam and Eve, male and female. He created them for that purpose. He joined them and he gave them that mission to give life. So if we say the primary essential purpose of, of just the sexual relationship between man and woman is to give life, we what we're saying essentially is that God... Abstracted from all the other purpose and rules for that one purpose the ultimate purpose of giving life Now we say as Catholics the primary essential purpose of marriage of sexual relations itself is to give life But we also say that the secondary essential purpose Is the fidelity between the husband and wife and the bond between them which is exclusive and permanent right now, that exclusive relationship between them, the secondary essential purpose, would prevent them from having concubines and mistresses and all the rest, right? It would mean they couldn't have relations with anyone but their own wives and their own husbands. Could God, therefore, the question arises, could God say, okay, the secondary purpose we're going to abstract from, we're going to lay aside for a moment, for the interests of of the primary essential purpose of giving life. We're going to allow that for the repopulation of the world. Essentially, the fathers of the church said yes. And that's exactly what God did. That he relaxed what was the secondary essential purpose, and that is the exclusiveness of that bond between the husband and wife, for the sake of repopulating the earth in the interest of the primary essential purpose of giving life.
1: And when did he reinstate that? that Well, when
0: when our Lord spoke as he did. Okay now this this involves a very what i consider to be a very interesting question here but i think it's very instructive and i if you'll let me uh explain this tom a uh, minute yes. uh, you see did moses in fact give the permission to do this yes he did yes he did right. he allowed the putting away of a wife and taking another okay did the did the fathers the patriarchs did they after noah Practice this concubine question. Did they have wives and also concubines? Even slaves slave girls who they had relations with and generated children by them. Yes, they did after Noah The patriarchs did follow that Because they understood that this God allowed this okay It is a fact though that Abraham Isaac and Jacob did have either one wife and concubines or multiple wives, right? They did. Going right on down through Saul, through Moses, through Saul, through David. Yes, they did, right? And uh, this, this pattern continued all the way through. I mean, Moses came down the mountain. He did not condemn this. And you might say, well, why did he not condemn this? I mean, this was the old law, that God God himself sent the old law, didn't he? Yes, he did. It came from God. Why would God send a law like that, through Moses, that tolerated something like this? Why would God allow that to happen? Because I think that's the question, why would God allow this? That's the question that was asked. And the question then comes down to, but why would God send Moses down the mountain with the Tenth Commandments that allowed this to happen? And I think the answer is going to be found coming from the mouth of our Lord himself. Turn to St. Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 5. What do you find? The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. right? Blessed are those with hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are the merciful, the Beatitudes, Beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. What comes next? It was said to you of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the law of Moses. But I say to you rather this, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hurt you. Our Lord is now saying something different from what Moses said. right? There's a litany of about eight of these statements of our Lord. It was said to you of old by Moses. But now I say to you that I want you to do this. And after having said that, realizing, of course, as our Lord did, that the people could interpret him to say, forget the old law, I'm giving you a new law, and we're doing away with the old law. And our Lord said then, explicitly, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, I have not come to destroy the law, but I've come to perfect the law, to perfect the law. That's what our Lord said. Now, what does that mean? You know, you think about those words and you realize what our Lord is saying is, the old law was not perfect. That's what our Lord is saying there. He's saying the old law was imperfect. So, we when we put that together with what question is being asked, we realize the old law was not perfect. Christ said so. That he himself came to perfect the law. And so, Maybe looking at the old law now, we should begin to understand a little bit better what it really was, what St. Paul tells us it really was, and what place it had, and why it would have flaws, why it would even permit things that were tolerated as evils but not condemned. They were permitted only in the sense that they were tolerated, but they were going to be changed and perfected but only when Jesus Christ himself came into the world. And a prime example of that is exactly what what this dear person is talking about here. It's a prime example of this whole idea. There were some things that were going to be tolerated as evils, but they were going to be corrected, but they were going to be corrected when Jesus Christ himself came into the world, and he personally would correct them. Now, to sum up, if I may, here, when our Lord was confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and, and the Levites and so on in the the streets, challenging him on this idea of divorce and remarriage, getting rid of a woman you don't want, finding another woman, right? When our Lord was challenged by them, and he told them it was not this way in the beginning, that, that Moses said it was okay, and he said to them, Moses permitted that, you might even say tolerated that because of the hardness of your hearts. That's what he told them. That this was permitted only because of your stubbornness and your corruption and your wickedness, the hardness of your hearts. That's the only reason why this was permitted. And it wasn't just Moses who permitted it, it was God himself who permitted this. The flaws of the shortcomings of the old law. And then our Lord says to them, It wasn't that way in the beginning. It is not that way from now on. I am restoring what was done by my father in the beginning. Where it says in Genesis chapter 3, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Look it up. Genesis chapter 3, right right from the start, right? The very chapter after our Lord says, increase, multiply, and fill the earth. and gave the command to them to give life. That's where we read this. Our Lord says to the Pharisees, says, have you not read this? I mean, these are the people who are supposed to know the law, right? And he asked them, have you not read this? Are you not aware of this? He says, it wasn't this way in the beginning. And it isn't going to be that way from now on. Oh, they were so angry. Our Lord was essentially telling them that they were guilty of adultery. The very people they'd been putting to death were no more innocent or guilty than they themselves were. Oh, they hated him for that. This had played a big part in the factor of why they wanted to kill him. Their decision to do away with our Lord, not challenge him anymore in in this contest to make him look like the enemy of Moses, they gave that up. Now they were hell-bent on destroying him because of what he had told them there. In front of all the people. You, you are no better than those you've been putting to death for adultery. But Tom, there what happened immediately afterwards? Our Lord is alone with his apostles. You know, they they say to him, How can this be? They challenge him on this. How can this be that a man cannot put away his wife and take another wife if he wants to? Our Lord says the grace is given. They answer that it's better not to get married in the first place. You can't do that. It's so much a part of their thinking. They can't imagine how it's possible. And yet our Lord says, this is the way it is. Because he's really talking like the Son of God, who has the power to say this. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I think the answer to this question is very important. I think the question itself is very important. When Moses came down that mountain, if he had come down that mountain and told them this, they would have killed him. I mean, he had many brushes with death anyway. He was being challenged constantly by these stiff-necked people. If he came down that mountain, you saw the reaction of the people when our Lord told them this. And imagine if 1,450 years before, our God had sent, Moses down the mountain to tell these hundreds of thousands of people in the desert, you can't do that anymore. They would have killed him. And marched right back to Egypt. Back into slavery again. God did not require Moses to do that. God did not send Moses down that mountain. Rather God came himself and personally told them, in the streets of Jerusalem, told them, this is how it was and this is the way it's going to be from now on. So that even his apostles were questioning. Now, this tells us a great deal about our Lord and his role. And among other things, the reason why he was so hated by the Pharisees. Who accused them of also being sinners and needing a redeemer. Um, All of this is tied together in this question. And it all kind of summed up in this very question. Yes, God did tolerate an evil through an imperfect law that was going to require an enormous sacrifice to be made to correct and to perfect but it was god himself who was going to come and he was going to perfect the law by what he called the new law and he would pay the price to do that of the hatred of mankind for daring to tell them thou shalt not commit adultery right? and uh, so anyway we closed close of the book very symbolic but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, anyway I hope some of that was of some interest to somebody sure
1: definitely no that's that's definitely a, uh, a recurring question I, I welcome that the way, question
0: uh, because it's, yeah. it's so gets to the heart of so many things
1: yeah definitely well yeah Father we have several other things that we'd like to get to but uh, perhaps we can save them for a later date so I guess we'll have to help for do that, that. <laughs> cool well Father thanks for being here tonight I appreciate your time oh certainly you're welcome yeah thanks we
0: really thank our viewers too
1: yeah absolutely thanks to all our viewers for watching this episode of what Catholics believe until next time we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance thank you and God bless you